The history of the church is full of these stories of people running from God and God pursuing them. And the scriptures are full of them as well. We think of the Lord Jesus teaching that he would leave the 99 when one would wander away and he would go and get that one and bring it back rejoicing. And that sounds like such a sweet, wonderful thing. And it is a sweet, gracious truth that the Lord Jesus will come and pursue us even when we turn our backs on him. But, you know, when you learn a little more about the Bedouin shepherding tactics in the ancient Near East, it gets a little less sweet. As I understand it, if there was a lamb who would wander away again and again in order to keep that animal from being picked off by a predator, the shepherd would go to some great lengths. He would leave the rest in the fold. He would go and find that sheep, pick it up, put it over his shoulders, and then he would break the legs of the lamb. And that sounds awful and mean and everything, but it was for the animal's own good so that it would have to stay right there with the shepherd as it healed around his neck, being cared for in every way by him, being fed, hand-fed by him, learning to depend entirely on him, never straying from him. He would actually do something to hurt the animal in order to save the animal. This reminds me of what the Lord Jesus says in Revelation 3, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. He's calling us to repent. We see this throughout the story of God's people. I think of Adoniram Judson, after whom our church is named, how he, at a young age, felt a call to be a minister, and he was being encouraged in that direction. But then he and a friend, a guy named Harry Eames, they decided that they maybe didn't so much believe in God, or at least weren't going to serve him with their lives, and became something of an agnostic. And he was fleeing from God, leaving, going off to do his own thing. And on his way, he stopped in a little inn. And he thought he'd get a good night's sleep so he could keep on fleeing in the morning. And yet he couldn't sleep because of the sound of a dying man in the next room. And in the morning, he inquired as to whether the man had lived through the night. And the innkeeper said, sadly, no, he died. And he said, might I inquire of the man's name? And the innkeeper looked at his log and said, his name was Harry Eames. And that was to Judson a great wake-up call, God's way of using even the death of a friend to call him back, to go and get his own, because he belonged to God. He'd been bought with a price. He was not his own. In a similar way, God uses a tempest that threatens to kill a large boat full of people in order to pursue Jonah. And the same thing often happens invisibly with us, but just as tumultuously in our own hearts when we, like Jonah, flee from the presence of the Lord. Indeed, as we read in Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Jonah is about to learn that in our text for today. Now, from one point of view, this should be the end. Jonah decided to leave, he sinned, he rebelled, and he turned and fled from God. He turned his back to his creator. And, you know, God doesn't need him. 
An overwhelming portion of the American church today embraces a very human-centered theology which puts supreme value on human choice, human decision, human will. And if we accept that, then God should just let him go. That's his right. That's him exercising his free will. That's, that's up to Jonah whether he's in or out. But the book of Jonah has an awful lot to teach us about God's sovereign grace and divine election. God has chosen Jonah, and he's not going to just write him off. He's going after his own. And I don't know about you, but I am awfully glad that God does this. This is why we can sing, as we have this morning, your love never fails. It never gives up. It never walks out on me. Even when I would walk out on him, he will not walk out on me. And th this is all very big, like we said last week, but there's an even bigger story reflected here. In verse 3, we see it begins with the words, but Jonah. And, and that could, for us, kind of stand in for all of human sin and depravity. The word of the Lord came to him, but Jonah, but Jonah rebelled, but Jonah disobeyed, but Jonah would not listen. There's sin tied up with a bow here for us. This is the human response to God's word, but Jonah. But then in our text for today, verse 4 begins with those beautiful words, then the Lord. But Jonah fled, then the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. He is going after Jonah. He often lets us turn away, and at first he calls us back with that still small voice, his Holy Spirit within us, and if we respond, we respond, but if we don't, he begins to nudge gently, and eventually, if he must, he gets nasty. Jonah's going to find out just how sovereign this God is. As we read in Psalm 139.3, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Jonah has gone on a path away from God. He's now lying down. He's sleeping in the bottom of the boat. But God searches him out and knows where he is. God pursues him using just some of the tools at his disposal. Proverbs 30, we read, Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? And Psalm 135 he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. It's as if God just opens up his storehouse and says, hmm, what would be the right tool for the atlas? Here's a wind. Here's a good wind. And so he, according to the NIV, he sends it. He sends a great wind. The ESV is better. He hurls a great wind. We talked a little about key words that are repeated last week, and, and hurl is another one here. It's used four times in this episode, in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 12, in verse 15. God hurls the wind. The sailors hurl all of their wares over the side of the boat, and Jonah says to them, hurl me into the sea. And again, this, this probably doesn't translate back into the Hebrew, but it does strike me as a little humorous that uh, in a book where the climax is, a large fish vomiting someone out that hurl would be a key word. But the point is, these are extreme things. He's not just sending, he is hurling the wind out to overtake the boat. We see another key word from last week again popping up. That's the word great. Remember, go to Nineveh, the great city. And so instead he goes the other direction to the great sea. 
We see this week that it's a great wind and a great storm. We'll see that the sailors have great fear at the sight of it. Yes, all of these things happening in the earthly realm are great, but our God is greater and he has the wind and the rain and the fish of the sea and everything at his command. This word tempest comes from a Hebrew root which means to agitate or rage. God is is stirring this up. It's almost like he flipped on the washing machine of the sea and it just started going, you know how it does? It's a great storm. And it's so great that even these sailors who by nature are bold and daring, who are used to the storms of the great sea, were afraid. You see, this was no ordinary squall. They knew from the the get, because in the eastern Mediterranean, storms don't usually come until late autumn. So this this caught them off guard that it had come this time of year. But also just the intensity, it's like they'd never seen. The the ship was in danger. The the ESV here says the ship threatened to break apart. Literally, if you woodenly (laughs) translate this passage about the boat, it says the ship thought it would break apart. The sailors above board know that they're going down. Even the ship seems to know it's going down. Only Jonah is oblivious. Remember, there was that other key word from last week, arise. That was the first word of the command given when the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Arise and go to call against Nineveh, the great city. But Jonah, in response, went down. You remember that? He fled unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it. God's calling, rise up, come up into my presence. And he's going down and down, 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 away from God. And Jonah has now gone down below deck to the deepest recess of the boat, taking yet another step closer to death, away from the giver of life. He's gone down as far as he can, although now he's in danger of going down much further. And we'll see next week that he does go down even into the depths of the sea. The Septuagint, uh, which of course is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which the apostles seem to have used, seems to imply that the captain found Jonah because he was snoring. That's how deep a sleep he was in. He was down there inspecting the boat, looking for leaks, and, and there over the creaking of the ship below deck, he heard Jonah <laughs> Now, why was he sleeping? How how did he so promptly fall asleep and sleep through something like this? Well, it's possible that he just fell asleep quickly because he was travel-weary. He's been running. He's been running from God. When you do that, you run with intensity. And now he thinks he's finally safe and alone. The running is done. He can finally get some rest. Or it's possible that he just went down because he was fleeing even further. He's fleeing from the light into the darkness, as far from the light as he could possibly get. People who are guilty do this. They shrink back from the presence of God and even then from the presence of others. So often, if your neighbor or your brother is no longer going to church very often and you say, what's going on? Nine times out of ten, they'll tell you, I'm just so very busy. And that may be the case, but... Very often, it's that they are in a state of guilt and deep down, they have a sense of, I don't want to go into God's presence or into the presence of the saints. I want to pull back, shrink back from the presence of God and from the presence of the church. Jonah's here hiding his sin, not not unlike how when Achan stole the gold and the silver that was to be dedicated to God through destruction, 
What did he do with it? Well, he buried it in his tent. He hid it. It's almost like Jonah is here trying to bury himself in the ship. Or perhaps it could be that he's in a deep sleep of grief. Sometimes that happens, like when someone's so depressed they just don't even want to get out of bed. We read in Luke 22, when he rose from prayer, Jesus came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Perhaps Jonah here is sleeping for sorrow. We don't know. At any rate, he was asleep and in more ways than one. And usually to us, sleep indicates what? Peace, right? Hey, I can sleep at night, people will say. I can, I can sleep. I, I've got a clear conscience. And what Jonah is doing here is following that advice that we so often give each other. Let your conscience be your guide. Not often a smart move. Yeah, Jonah could sleep at night. He could sleep during the day. He could sleep in a boat that was about to break apart under a supernatural sea storm. This is just further proof that you can't trust your feelings. You can't follow your heart. you got to lead your heart. There are so many situations in which our feelings will lead us astray. When we've seared our conscience against the Holy Spirit... When we've confused ourselves through double talk, trying to justify our actions, or simply when our heart, which is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked in and of itself in the flesh, takes us down the wrong path, the broad path that leads to destruction. Nor can we always trust what looks like providence. Oh, the situation, the circumstances seem to lead me in this direction. It could be that Jonah was feeling that. He, he was on his way just fleeing west. He got to the sea. There he is at this, this port. It's not a great port, but it's kind of the best they had in the area uh, called Joppa. And he asks the first guy he comes to, he says, where's this ship going? Tarshish. Tarshish. I was just wanting to go to Tarshish. Hey, maybe God's closing that Nineveh door and, and opening this Tarshish window for me. Maybe I'm all right. Word to the wise. Do not try to see God speaking to you through everyday occurrences if you don't first and foremost look to his word as a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Then and only then and only within that light that his word shines on your path, the narrow path, should you consider whether God is speaking to you through this encounter or that coincidence or these circumstances. Jonah, on the contrary, had ignored God's word. And so he could know that he was not doing God's will, no matter how many signs he thought he saw, no matter no matter how right it felt in his spirit. Charles Spurgeon once said, Now I very commonly meet with persons who say, I felt that I must do so and so, or it came upon me that I must do so and so. I am afraid of these impulses, he writes, very greatly afraid of them. People may do right under their power, but they will spoil what they do by doing it out of mere impulse and not because the action was right in itself. So that's what's going on below deck. Let's go back above deck a moment. Fear and chaos are ruling the day above deck. And sometimes fear is a good thing. It's been demonized today, but it was given to us to help us survive. And God often uses it to help us flourish. In fact, speaking of fear in one sense, we read in Scripture that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The captain of this ship is doing all that he can do, all that can be expected of him, and he's motivated by a very real fear, while Jonah has lost even the fear of God. 
Very ironic, this is a supernatural storm chasing after exactly one man, and only the concerned party is unconcerned. First, the sailors try every human method they can think of, from normal sailing techniques to more extreme tactics, including finally throwing all their freight into the water, which might be for us a bit of a spiritual lesson. It's a common thing to do in the midst of a storm. In fact, later in Acts 27, as Paul is en route to Rome and and they are in the midst of a storm, we read this, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Then, a little later, we read that we began to eat, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Your priorities change in the midst of this sort of emergency. That was the wisest thing they could do, was throw the cargo overboard. The whole point of this trip was to carry that freight. Jonah was just an add-on. That was just a little bonus. No, this was about cargo, and they threw all the cargo out because their lives mattered more. But in this case, it didn't work. See, they could have thrown everything out, every last crumb of food, every last bit of cargo, but the only weight they need to lose is the rebellious prophet in the belly of the ship. In a sense, he's heavier than everything else combined. In fact, the scriptures sometimes present sin to us metaphorically as being heavy. In Zechariah 5, there's this picture of Israel stuck in a basket, and sin is the heavy lead cover trapping her in. Or, or King David in Psalm 38, he says, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. And they're not only pushing down on his head, but now affecting, as sin does, moving as leaven through the entire loaf, affecting others, affecting everyone in this boat. The sailors above deck now have waves above their head crashing down and churning waters beneath, threatening to break the boat up. And they are terrified. Their fear, as we read, is great. I think it can be summed up with the words of Psalm 107, describing very much the same situation. We read this, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised up the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and were at their wits' end. And these men were at their wits' end. The captain realized that they were perishing, that all their cargo was useless to help, all their wealth was useless to help, all their efforts were useless, and only if there was a God in heaven who heard their prayers and saved them would they live. In other words, they were in the condition of all human beings everywhere. Only they just now came to understand it. And ironically, the Israelite prophet has to be summoned to prayer by a pagan sailor. Never underestimate how God can speak to and work through those who don't know him in Jesus Christ. Jerome says of this situation, not knowing the truth, they yet know of a providence and amid religious error know that there is an object of reverence and they seek him out while Jonah, who knows him intimately, runs away from him. I mean, Jonah's whole deal is calling out to people on God's behalf and on behalf of people calling out, and yet it's only a pagan who is concerned 
that the people not perish. So he goes down and says to Jonah in true King James English, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Right? What meanest thou, O sleeper? I've always, I've always thought that's the King James at its King Jamesiest. The ESV is, is not much less stilted. What do you mean, you sleeper? Probably a better way to convey the meaning in that moment would be like, what is your deal, sleeping? Or what's with you, sleeping? Or as the NIV says, how can you sleep? And then he says to him, arise. Now he's been going down, going down, going down, further and further. And now, not just God, but this pagan sailor is even saying to him, what are you doing? Arise. Get up, pray for life, and prepare for death. And in saying this, this captain unknowingly echoes God's original commission of Jonah. You remember he said, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it. Arise and call out. And now this captain says to him, Arise and call out to your God. Maybe he'll hear us and think of us. This is providence and God's word working together. And that's where we might put some weight on providence, when it works with God's word, not apart from and certainly not against. I'd say about 80% of the time when someone makes a plea to a feeling in their heart or outward circumstances in their lives and says, see, God is speaking in these things, they're trying to override scripture, not more clearly understand it. And well, my assumption as we go through this book is that it is not a parable, but a, a historical event that happened. It is, as is the case throughout all of Scripture, a picture for us of spiritual realities, particularly a foreshadowing of Christ. And this has been the understanding of this book going all the way back. I mean, the rabbinic tradition about Jonah is that the 70 nations of the world were represented by those who were riding in that ship that day. And that it's a picture of God's judgment coming down then on the pagan nations all around while God's people, including the prophet, are asleep in their midst. Even as these Gentiles are about to perish while calling on their pagan gods, the one in their midst who could tell them the right way and lead them into God's presence is snoozing. And this is such a poignant picture of what we see happening so frequently in the church. And it's the same process that is followed. After turning from the word of God, they then turn from the presence of God and go to sleep again and again and again in church history. We see that and we see it today as well. The American church is so frequently asleep in the midst of wealth and pleasure and a new kind of entertainment or amusement every day, asleep in the midst of commerce and technology without end, and yet... We would be better off and far wiser to throw it all overboard and call out to our God that he save us and save those around us. Because when we wake up, we see what they see, that this whole thing is going down and that we've gone down as well. And Jesus calls us, wake up and arise. It's interesting that you say wake up, not wake out, out of sleep. No, up. Wake up, arise, call out. God uses this heathen ship captain to reiterate his initial command to Jonah. And this foreshadows Jesus. Remember when he rebuked his disciples saying, watch and pray. His, his exact words in Luke 22 are, why are you sleeping? 
Arise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. There's a wonderful song by Keith Getty that says, O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. The story of Scripture is the story of man's descent into the pit of darkness and God bringing us back out. We can't get out. You know why we can't? Listen to this description of the pit in in Psalm 40. He lifted me out of the slimy pit and out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. The pit we have fallen into or more frequently jumped headfirst into is slimy and muddy. And trying to climb out just results in what would be comedic if it weren't so tragic. This morning I want to call you to search your heart and your mind and search your life and ask the question, have I gone down? Descended into the darkness spiritually, back into the muddy pit? Have I fled the presence of the Lord? Am I finding myself withdrawing from him and from his people? Or even if I haven't backslid morally in my life, am I asleep in the midst of all of those who are perishing just when they need to hear the word of the Lord the most? If that's the case, it's not that you're no longer one of his. Jonah is still a prophet. He still belongs to God here. And that just means that God is coming to get him. And if it describes you, you're still one of his. And if that's the case, don't wait for him to bring the tempest into your life to catch up with you, to hurl the wind from his storehouse, whatever form that will take. Instead, heed the words of St. Paul that we read in Ephesians 5. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, you ready for this? Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This morning, if you're asleep, if you're in the belly of the boat, if you have been in a sense fleeing from God, and now you've gone down and down to the point where you've just checked out. Awake and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And this is not something you have to do yourself. We think of the Apostles' Creed, which tells us that he came down from heaven, and he he was willing, he, he was on high, and he came down on our behalf. And then he died on a cross and went down into the grave. And we read that he descended into hell for us so that we would not have to. And then he arose, he came back from the dead, he arose from the grave, and he ascended into heaven. And so through baptism, we too have died with him and rose again with him as we've seen this morning. He did these things for us. All you need to do is wake up and call out to him, and he will bring you back into the fold rejoicing. We can't end our time this morning without looking at the great similarities between this passage and the gospel narrative, which Steve read for us this morning where we see Jesus calming the storm, that famous story. There's so many similarities. Both Jesus and Jonah were in a boat. Yeah, okay, that's, that's a little bit broad. 
But, but look closer. Both boats were overtaken by a tempest. And the descriptions of these tempests, these storms, are almost identical. And we think Mark is doing this on purpose as he describes. He's pointing back to Jonah. We see that both Jesus and Jonah were sleeping below deck. In both stories, those who came and woke them up, those who were manning the boat, said, we're going to die. Wake up. Don't you care? And in both cases, there was a miraculous divine intervention and the sea was calmed. And in both stories, the sailors then became even more terrified by that than they were by the storm in the first place. The difference lies in the prophet who's sleeping and what kind of sleep it is and why he's able to sleep in the storm. Jesus is resting in the Father knowing that God is in control. Jesus is resting in his presence. Jonah, on the other hand, is fleeing from his presence. Jonah is prophesying to himself, as all false prophets do, peace, peace, when there is no peace. He's saying to himself, don't worry, God's a gracious God, and I like that when it benefits me, not so much when it benefits others, but I I like the, the thought that he'll be okay with this because he's full of grace. Yes, He is full of grace, the grace of the shepherd who lovingly scoops up that lamb and then does what needs to be done to bring it home once and for all. To be smitten by God in love is better than to have the kind of cheap grace we sometimes desire. And that's what we start to see when we embrace the good news, the gospel. Yeah, David wrote, My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden that they are too heavy for me. They're crushing him, crushing down. But Jesus tells us later in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not the kind of rest that Jonah had, a fitful sleep below deck while waiting for God's judgment inevitably to come, but the kind of rest that Jesus had, resting in the Father, resting in our hearts, resting in our spirits. If you've fallen asleep, spiritually arise, awake. Christ will shine on you. Run to the presence of the Lord, not from the presence. Flee to the cross, and you will find rest for your soul, true rest. Or run from him. And if you're one of his, he'll be coming for you with a tempest of some kind.